Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. In just a few short months, gyms across America will experience a drastic increase in their membership and sales. January has historically been the highest month of new sales and memberships at local gyms as people seek to kick off their New Year's resolutions. But with every new workout endeavor, there are a set of risks that come to those that fail to practice the right disciplines. For example, most people agree that working out is a good thing for your health, but few people actually put into practice the techniques and disciplines that are necessary for positive results. A common temptation for many is to head straight to the gym and immediately begin working out without any prior preparation whatsoever. This is certainly not the best discipline because the strain of working out can inflict injuries upon unprepared muscles. On the flip side, some overcompensate and they spend time conducting strenuous stretching which inflicts injuries in a different way. The point being, everyone agrees that working out is beneficial but few people agree on the proper disciplines that produce the right results. There is perhaps no other subject in all of religion that crosses the lines of denominational and religious divides as effortlessly as this subject of prayer. The subject of Jesus and God vary from religion to religion. The subjects of salvation and baptism and eternal security vary from denomination to denomination. But this object or this subject or this philosophical concept of prayer remains consistent. When it comes to the topic of prayer, while the subject itself may be consistent, both the practice and the interpretation of prayer certainly differ. People pray to different deities, they pray to different people and saints. Some people even pray to a God that they don't believe in. There is something about expressing a need that is bigger than yourself to a being that is greater than yourself that brings comfort and hope to the heart of any human being. In fact, even the atheist that claims there is no God prays. Several weeks ago, I was on the phone with an atheist who is coming here to help us out with an event that we're doing, and he expressed to me just how much of a devout atheist that he was, but in that same conversation, he also told me that he prays. This doesn't make sense to me, but he prays even though he's being an atheist. Well, you may ask yourself, why does a person who claims there is no God still open to this idea of prayer? Because there is no such thing as an atheist. So, Pastor Brandon, how do you know that? Have you seen the heart of every single person that claims that there's an atheist? No, I don't have to. The Bible itself says there is no such thing as an atheist. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood that by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We refer to this as general or natural revelation. Paul says that the concept of God is written upon the heart of every single person. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 2 verse 15 that God's law is written on their hearts. There being Gentiles, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile whom has not been delivered the law. And their conscience, the Bible says, bears witness of God's law. 
So the fact that every single person, even those that claim there is no God, has an understanding of the difference between right and wrong points to an innate understanding of who God is. So when it comes to this subject of prayer, everyone has a soft heart towards it. I've never met anyone that has refused my offer to pray for them. But of course, we as Christians understand that prayer is far more than a philosophical concept. We know that prayer is a foundational point to our growth in Christ. It's how we communicate with the Lord. Prayer is the vehicle in which we express our heart to the supreme creator, the sovereign Lord. And while we may agree with the importance of prayer and even enjoy the concept and the idea behind it, we oftentimes fall short in the discipline of it. We fail to pray even though we know we should because our faith is weak. We fail to pray because of a lack of understanding of what prayer really is. We view prayer more as a grocery store list rather than a communion with God. We view prayer as a postage stamp to our letter of recommendation for what we deem is appropriate for our life before God. There are multiple different reasons why we fail to practice the discipline of prayer, but this morning we seek to gain a deeper knowledge of this subject of prayer. So take your Bibles with me and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 as we continue this study in the book of James. This morning we find ourselves hovering over the landing strip of this book of James. The study of James has been a tremendous encouragement, I pray, to all of our hearts. It certainly has been to mine. As we read this truth uh, from the loving pastor, a letter to, from the loving pastor to his former congregation, James writes this letter to the Christian Jews that had dispersed from the church of Jerusalem to the surrounding areas. They were once a part of his church. God, through his grace, allowed James to be a prominent pillar, a pastor of the church of Jerusalem, which was the first established local church. But because of persecution, the people spread out. Well, James had a heart for his people. That never changed. And so he writes this letter for the subject of, if you claim to be a Christian, then act like it. And so through this letter, he develops really the profile of what a genuine Christian looks like. James begins this passage within this fifth section here by addressing the treatment of the rich towards the poor. In verses 1 through 6, James delivers the condemnation of the rich as they seek to build upon their luxuries by defrauding the poor. James then encourages the oppressed Christians in verses 7 through 11 by reminding them that they live for something far greater than riches. And through that encouragement, James urges the Christians to look forward to the return of Christ because Jesus is the only one that can bring satisfaction. He's the only one that can bring justice to the unjust. As Christians, we are blessed to know that we have a future with Jesus, and in Jesus we have a greater hope than what earthly riches can ever afford. But as we come to verse 13, what James does is he shifts gears, as he seems to do all throughout this letter. In verses 13 through 18, James discusses this subject of prayer, but he focuses attention on the discipline of prayer, specifically within the church. Throughout the encouragement from James, what we see here in this section is the discipline of prayer explained as it pertains to our communion with the Lord. And so look with me. Down at verse 13 of James chapter 5, we're going to read down to verse 18. Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. 
Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah, who was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. Going back to the example that I gave at the beginning of the sermon, prayer is one of those aspects of Christianity that effortlessly glides between different religions and denominations. But that certainly does not mean that everyone has the right understanding of what prayer truly is. Within this section of James, James delivers one of the most misunderstood and controversial aspects when it comes to this subject of prayer. And so together in our time this morning, we will discover the proper understanding of prayer specifically as it pertains to the church, which gives us the title of our message, Prayer as it Pertains to the Church. Prayer is a wonderful privilege that can oftentimes be grossly misapplied. There was a young boy who had heard a sermon on this persistence of prayer. He was praying by himself in his room one night, and his dad passed his door when he heard the boy praying over and over again, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. And so obviously confused, the next day the dad asked his son what he was doing. The boy replied that he had given the wrong answer on the test for the capital of Mexico, and he was praying that Tokyo would become the capital of Mexico so that he could get it right. This certainly is a humorous example of prayer, but the principle behind it is not far off base. Prayer is a powerful way to build a deeper intimacy with God. Alvin Reed states, prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. And there is much that the Bible says about prayer. James certainly does not talk about all aspects of that, but he does focus regarding the suffering Christian, specifically within the church. See, the previous verses deal with the persecution of Christians, so James assumes that the Christians are still feeling persecution. James recognizes the weariness of each soul as it endures suffering and persecution. And so in order to help the readers understand both the importance and power of prayer, he begins by defining the role of prayer. He defines prayer as it pertains to suffering, happiness, and sickness. And then James concludes with this thought regarding the result of prayer when the role of prayer is accomplished properly. But let's, before we move on, let's look first off at the role of prayer. The role of prayer. The questioning of James almost seems unnecessary. James says that if anyone, he asks this, if anyone among you is suffering, well, certainly within the context of these verses, there are some that were suffering. The entire premise behind verses 7 through 12 is perseverance through suffering. So it would almost go without saying that James would ask, is anyone in here suffering? So there certainly must have been people that were. But as you continue through the verse here, James flips the narrative and addresses those that are happy. He then focuses on those that are sick. But what we see within each circumstance is a different discipline of prayer. James says to pray in each circumstance, but pray in a different way. So let's look at the first thing here. First off, we petition in suffering. We petition in suffering. The word petition means to appeal to an authority for a particular case. If you're to walk on Franklin Street or go downtown somewhere uh, in another city somewhere, you may be approached by someone asking you to sign a petition. And it's a document asking that the local leaders and authority would change or address something. 
An aspect of the discipline of prayer involves petitioning. James begins with this emphasis on the individual that is suffering. James says, is there anyone among you that is suffering? He then says, let him pray. The word suffering here, I want to be clear, is not referring to physical ailments, but rather affliction. Keeping within the overall theme here, James commands those that are grieving under the persecution of man to pray rather than respond in the flesh. And this piece of advice almost seems cliche if we're honest with ourselves. If you've been at our church for quite some time or maybe you've gone to another church and you share requests with someone or you share a hardship with me or another spiritual leader such as Pastor Bryce or a deacon, most likely you've heard the response, just pray or I'll be praying for you. This isn't a tactic to get the person to stop confiding or expressing their pain. In my situation, I tell you to pray because God is the only one that can correct the problem, bring wisdom for the solution, and bring comfort to your hearts. James says that if there is anyone suffering, then pray because prayer is the only action that will bring about comfort and change. There was one author that conducted a survey, and he found that Christians, the average Christian, prays anywhere from three to five minutes a day. This is in comparison to the three to five hours of television, texting, or other forms of leisure that many of us participate in. The author then concluded, compare this time, or the, compare the time you spend complaining to the time you spend praying. Compare the time you spend talking to people about other people with the time you spend talking to God about people, and you'll have an idea of how prepared you are to endure the troubles of life. But the beautiful aspect about prayer when it comes to our suffering is that we are praying to a God that physically, emotionally, and experientially shares in our suffering. No other religion, no other philosophy can, can, has a God that can human relate to our physical, mental, and spiritual suffering like we do. The author of Hebrews states in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. What is the author saying here? The very God that we pray to, the creator of the universe, came to earth in human form, experienced the same hardships, the same human struggles that we experience, the same emotions, the same trials. But the only difference is that Jesus, being both God and man, never failed in those trials. So when we pray in the midst of our suffering, we are communicating with the God who experienced the same thing we are experiencing, but he was successful in that suffering. If I'm going to get advice and listen to anyone, I'm going to listen to one that was experienced and was successful in that. Another wonderful aspect about the gospel, though, and we're talking about the gospel a lot, the gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ, is that when you are suffering, we can go directly to God. Some religions teach that you must confess your sins and hardships to an elder or to a pastor, which we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, and they will represent on your behalf to God. But according to the scripture, according to the gospel, that is simply not true. The gospel restores our relationship to the Father so that man can go directly to God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24, or 22, Therefore, brethren, having boldness, enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way in which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and this full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is the beauty of the gospel. 
We are restored to the Father so we can go directly to Him, not through anyone else. Because of God's grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, we can approach the throne of God boldly and directly. But when it comes to this subject of suffering, James says, rather than respond through revenge, as we discussed last week, or with anger, resentment, or bitterness, James says, just pray. Pray with the understanding that our Heavenly Father hears us, understands us, empathizes with us. Pray with the understanding that our Heavenly Father is the only one that can bring true comfort in our hearts. Priscilla J. Owens in her hymn, We Have an Anchor, asked this question. He says, will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift firm or remain? She then answers, it is safely moored, twill the storm withstand, for tis well secured by the Savior's hand, and the cables pass from his hand to mine, can defy that blast through strength divine. In your midst of suffering, pray to the Heavenly Father. Cast your care upon him, as the Bible commands us to do, and believing that he cares for you. Rest in the promise that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and the fact that God is faithful. And he will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able, but will also make a way to escape so that we can bear it. In our suffering, it is on us to petition before God through prayer. But not only do we petition in suffering, James says that we praise in happiness. We praise in happiness. James states in verse 13, he says, is anyone cheerful? It's kind of interesting that he says this because he wants to cover the complete basis of his congregation. Are you suffering? Yes, pray. Are you cheerful? Yes. Then what? Let him sing psalms. The word cheerful here means to be overjoyed or happy. This is the opposite of the man that is suffering. James says that if you are suffering rather than swear or make a false promise as he commands against in verse 12, lift your heart up to God in prayer. But if you are not suffering, James does not command us to stop praying, but rather change our petition into praise. The shameful part about our prayer life is that our discipline of prayer is oftentimes just petition only, not in praise. The moment God answers our prayer, we fail to thank him for his mercy. Our day oftentimes begins, Lord, help me to physically and spiritually and endure the day, but rarely does our day end with, Lord, I praise you for the mercy I experienced today. In just one verse, James is addressing prayer and praise as it relates to both ends of the emotional spectrum. In our hard times, pray. In your happy times, praise. The point that James is making is that your entire life should be focused upon the honor, the worship, and the glory of God. But notice this avenue in which James commands us to demonstrate our praise, singing. This is why singing is such an integral part of the worship service. Singing is a form of worship with God. This is why the worship team comes early every single week and stays after church every single week to practice so that we can lead, not me, they can lead the congregation in effective, God-honoring worship through singing. This is why our church should be filled with a congregation that sings loudly to the praise of God rather than leaving it to just a few people on the stage. A visitor should come into our church and walk away after church and say, man, that church was a singing church because we sing praises to God in our good times and even in our bad times. The first two disciplines of prayer, if you notice, are directed towards the individual. He puts it on you. 
The third discipline of prayer shifts the focus towards the spiritual leaders of the church. James says in your suffering, you petition. In your happiness, you praise. But in your sickness, seek the help of spiritual leaders, which leads us to our third discipline of prayer within the church. We intercede in sickness. James continues in verses 14 through 15. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There is perhaps no other verses in Scripture that contribute to more confusion when it comes to this discipline of prayer than these two verses right here. There are so many questions that arise from just a surface reading of these verses. Every time I'm sick, do I need to call a spiritual leader to come in and pray for me? As a spiritual leader, am I required to spread oil on a person that is sick? Why did God not heal me when I prayed in the midst of my sickness? If I have enough faith, does that mean that God will heal me? Do spiritual leaders have the gift of healing? What does this mean? Joni Erickson Tata is a wonderful Christian author, radio host, and founder of Joni and Friends. It's an organization that focuses on the disability community and furthering the Christian ministry within that community. What Joni's life looks like now is far different than what she dreamed as a young teenager. My, much like a lot of our teenagers here in our church, she was an active, athletic teenager who loved to swim. At the age of 17, Joni was diving into the Chesapeake Bay when she misjudged the depth of water. As she dove headfirst into the shallow water, she broke her neck, resulting in a severed spinal cord, which left her paralyzed and confined to spend the rest of her life in a wheelchair. Joni was a strong Christian at that time, but a growing Christian. And so she read this passage, and she followed through with exactly what this passage, what she believed it commanded to do. So she reached out to her closest friends and family and spiritual leaders and invited them to have a private healing service at her home. The spiritual leaders came. They all gathered together. They prayed in great faith. The spiritual leaders anointed her with oil, and they waited. But nothing ever happened. To this day, Joni is still confined to a wheelchair. Now, it took some time for Joni to grow in her faith until she fully grasped the truth behind this passage. Joni was never healed physically, but God used her life to impact thousands of men and women for God's glory. But the question still remains, what is James talking about? Different than his other two points, James does shift this focus from personal prayer to intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is praying on the behalf of someone to God. On Wednesday nights, when we gather together for Bible study, we have a time of prayer afterwards. We are gathering prayer requests together, and we are praying on behalf of an individual to God. So that's what intercessory prayer is. James asks, is anyone among you sick? Now, this is where it's important for us to understand, what does that word sick mean? The word sick comes from the Greek word asteneo, which means weak. This word sick is not referring to a physical disability, but rather a weakness and feebleness due to a spiritual strain. Now, there are two reasons why the people have been weak and spiritually feeble. First off, they could have been wearied from the persecution they were receiving, which is the context of this entire passage here. But secondly, they could have been wearied because of the spiritual battle that they were fighting with God through unrepentance. 
In both cases, the stress could cause a person to feel physically weak. This is why James commands the spiritually weak, the weak to call the spiritual leaders, the elders of the church. James is not urging the weak to call the elders to conduct a healing service. James is urging the people to privately call the elders to pray on their behalf for both the forgiveness of that individual as well as spiritual strength. The elders could not and cannot today grant a person forgiveness. Only God can do that. But the elders could encourage the spiritually weak to give their burden to God. But what does oil have anything to do with this? Why do we anoint someone with oil? That's really understanding the historical context behind this is important. We would not do that today. But the Jews during that particular time period would have known exactly what James is talking about. Many have taken this passage to mean holy oil. Wrongly, people have, and false preachers have applied an attribute of God to an inanimate object like oil, all because of this verse. But the Jewish leaders would have understood that olive oil, specifically what he's talking about here, was used to soothe the weary person. Spiros, a Greek scholar, knew this practice of oil rubbing well. He recounted of the times in which he grew up in the early 1900s. He would often time the physical find the physically and emotionally weary people being rubbed down with olive oil. There was something soothing about olive oil, and it's like when we go to our spas today, and we are what? Rubbed down with oil. There's something about oil that is soothing. There's nothing supernatural about the olive oil that James is speaking of here. James is talking about a physical soothing effect that oil has upon those that are weary. But after this command, James delivers a promise that certainly does not seem to help the confusion. In verse 15, James states, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, this is not talking about physical healing, but spiritual strengthening. That is exactly what this is talking about here. James says that when a physically weary person calls upon the spiritual leaders of the church who intercedes then on their behalf and prays along with them for the spiritual strengthening from God, God will raise them up. In other words, God will encourage them spiritually. That is a promise that we can take to the bank. But James also adds that if anyone has committed sins, their sins will be forgiven. This phrase indicates that there are times in which we become so spiritually weary that it ends up resulting in a physical weariness. Unconfessed sin is certainly not always the reason for our suffering. Job is a primary example of that. But unconfessed sin is a fight with God. It is a war with God. And our spirit cannot compete against the spirit of God. And a fight with God will always leave someone spiritually and sometimes physically weak. David talks about this in Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 through 4. David says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David recounts the physical toil that his sin had upon both his spiritual and physical state. And maybe you've been there yourself where you are so overcome with grief. You are so overcome with, with just emotional turmoil because of the sin that you know is not right in your life that you literally become physically sick. That's what James is talking about here. But notice again who forgives and who restores. It is not the elders of the church, but Jesus Christ. James says that the elders pray in the name of Jesus Christ. What this means is that they are interceding in prayer 
that represents with everything whom Jesus is. The elders have no power. Only Jesus does the forgiving. This is why the health, the wealth, and the prosperity gospel is a false gospel that will not work and will never work. Jesus is the only one that does the healing and forgiving. Going back to our story with Joni Erickson Tata, she recounted the time that she was younger. She still was confused about this passage, but having a genuine and sincere faith, she heard that they, a famous healing preacher was in town. And so she gets her wheelchair, and her with a group of about 35 others make their way to the arena. They anxiously wait for the elevator to take them down to the floor of the arena. They go down, and they wait for that healing preacher to come heal them. And they waited in great faith. But again, nothing ever happened. So when it comes to this discipline of prayer within the church, James calls the individuals to petition to God in suffering. He says, praise God in times of happiness and in times of spiritual weariness. Call upon the spiritual leaders to pray on your behalf. And through faith in God, you will be lifted up and encouraged spiritually. So once we have all this figured out and we put this into practice, James then provides for us the result of prayer when prayed in faith. Which brings us to our second point here this morning, the result of prayer. James continues this thought of forgiveness and accountability. In verse 16, he says, Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. This word confess, as one commentator puts it, comes from the Greek word that means to openly and honestly share with one another your struggles and burdens. And James is not talking about a group therapy session here, but he's speaking about a, an accountability partner. James is saying that once we confess our sins to God and turn away from our sins, we must protect ourselves from future failures by setting up spiritually wise accountability partners. James continues. He says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And again, here's another verse that can be a bit confusing. Does this mean that God only answers prayer from those that are more righteous than others? What does it mean to be a righteous man? I've heard examples of some that had a misunderstanding of this verse to believe that the more I'm in tune with God, the more likely he will be to answer my prayer. And so there's a story of a gentleman that was in college, and he was in Bible college, newer to the faith, still uh, growing in his faith. He thought that if he woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and he went to the local prayer tower, before everyone else woke up and prayed that he would get in and being that righteous man of the day and God would answer his prayer. But is that what this verse is talking about? The word righteous here is in reference to a person that has been born again. When a person becomes a follower of Christ, Christ's righteousness is placed upon that sinful person. That is called imputation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that, he, he, that for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, another beautiful aspect about the gospel. When James, going back here to James, says that the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, he is referring to the humble prayer of a genuine Christian. When Christians get on their knees and genuinely seek the face of God, they or God will answer. This goes back to the promise that James makes in chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But to solidify his point, James closes out with this example of Elijah. 
In verses 17 through 18, James states, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. What James is doing is he's referencing the events that took place in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 18. You can make a note in your Bible regarding that. But in that story, it's a beautiful illustration of God's sovereignty when it intersects with our prayers. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, we see God's command to Elijah, who was just, by the way, to clarify here, he was a nobody. He came from a land of Tishbe, which I guarantee you that you will have a hard time finding that on any historical map. He was a nobody that God shows in his sovereignty to be a great prophet. He commands them, God does, and Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, after God commanded, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except in my word. So what God tells Elijah to do is go before the king Ahab, the wicked, wicked, horrible king Ahab, and tell him that a drought will come upon your kingdom, which was horrible news for that king to hear. Because everything depended upon rain in that particular time period, like it does today, but we can get by with it a little bit easier with our technology. But everything depended upon rain. Elijah was told to go before the king and tell him that there's going to be a drought, but then he says, it will not cease from you. There will always be a drought until I pray and the word of God allows that drought to leave. Fast forward to chapter 18. Elijah had just made the prophets of Baal look like fools by proving that there was only one true God. In 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 41, we see Elijah called to God for rain, and God answered. It says, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up, and he drank, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he bowed down on the ground, and he put his face between his knees, and he said to his servants, Go up now, look towards the sea. And so he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go up again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There was a cloud. As small as a man's hand rising up out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. Did God answer Elijah's prayer because he was some super spiritual man? Absolutely not. He was not some super righteous man that we interpret righteous to mean here. James makes it a point to say Elijah, having a nature just like you and I, just to kind of paint the picture here a little bit more, if you were to continue through the story of Elijah, after God raised him up to be this great prophet, he had this tremendous victory of making all the prophets of Baal look like fools and proving that there's only one true God. Elijah became severely depressed. He goes underneath a, a tree and literally asks God to kill him. Elijah became suicidal. But God answered his prayer. He was a righteous man in the fact that he was a follower of Christ. But he was a humble man in the fact that he knew that he couldn't do it on his own. But when God's sovereignty intersects with man's need in our prayer life, wonderful, tremendous things happen. So as we close here this morning, how can we be encouraged by all of this? We must pray. Our spiritual life depends upon it. In our suffering, we petition God for his mercy. In our happiness, we praise God for his grace. In our spiritual weariness, we call upon the spiritual leaders to pray with us. And through our prayer, we must have faith and we must trust in God's sovereign plan as he guides and directs according to his will. 
The great missionary William Carey lived by the motto, attempt great things for God and expect great things for God. May we be encouraged in the sovereign plan of our Lord. May we rest in this unchanging nature of our gracious Savior.